Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Mark's Gospel, and we want to look at the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. We get that threefold description of him by comparing the Gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all call him rich. Matthew 19.20 calls him young. And Luke 18.18 calls him a ruler. So you put those accounts together and we have this title, The Rich Young Ruler. And we've been addressing several problems here in the book of Mark. And so tonight, the problem of eternal life. Jesus is going to deal with the rich young ruler about the matter of eternal life. Now, he was rich, and so, Lord willing, next week we'll continue the story in verse 23 and following, where Jesus deals with the problem of wealth or riches and its dangers. We won't address that tonight but we'll just talk about this man's query of the Lord Jesus regarding eternal life. It says, when he had gone forth, we're in verse number 17 of Mark chapter 10, Mark 10, 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Let me go ahead and read through the story. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, and he lists, I believe, about five of them. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great riches." All right, so this man is quite the individual from this story, and I think from comparing it with the other Gospels. We not only find that he was rich, young, and a ruler, but he was the kind of a person that, as a rich, young ruler, that's sort of rare, rare in Jesus' day, and rare in our day as well. He was also conscientious, and responsible, and dependable. I don't think that he, I don't know this for sure, of course, that he was rich because he inherited that, but probably because he was a hard-working young person. These traits are difficult to find in anybody, really, not just young people, but in everybody of every age. 
works. It's rare to find folks that are conscientious, responsible, and dependable all the way around. He already had some kind of a position of leadership being a ruler. So he's young in that leadership. Normally people in leadership are older. We don't normally put young men, and the Bible has an adage about that as well. There's a balance there between it, not to put a person in office as a novice, but then Paul told Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. So there is some maturity that can come to the youth, but normally we do not put young people in places of leadership. They have to sort of earn that responsibility and that right. He's also sincere, and he's desperately in search of eternal life. He comes running to the Lord and kneeling down and asking him, What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he's searching for eternal life. He knew that his riches, his prestige as a ruler, even his youth were not enough to get him to heaven and to give him, grant him eternal life. And so this man is earnest, he's sincere, he's desperate, good qualities in a young man, eager, Humble even in the fact that he kneeled to the Lord. And respectful because he calls him good master. And also concerned about his own spiritual life. These are all good traits in this man. Good things in this rich young ruler. But let's look at this. He walks away without eternal life. So let's look at four facts concerning eternal life. And the first fact about eternal life is that to praise Jesus is not enough. He comes and calls him good master. Now, it's good to do that. It's good to praise the Lord. It's good to recognize him for who he is. In fact, as Jesus goes on with this story, he says to him in verse number 18, Why callest thou me good? Because there's none good but one, and that is God. Now, Jesus was saying in so many words, I am God. I'm not sure if the rich young ruler caught this truth or not. We don't see it here in Mark's Gospel, but when the Lord prompted John the Apostle to write his epistles, John brings out the fact that you have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He says something to the effect, No man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. So you have to recognize that Jesus is God. I believe that's one of the fundamentals of the faith, the basic truths of the Word of God, that Jesus Christ is God. As John is writing his epistles, he also says that if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, essentially denying his deity, you are not of God. So I don't know whether this man recognized Jesus as God or not. But Jesus is trying to bring him to that place if he doesn't recognize that. He's praising him. We mentioned this morning from the Second Timothy chapter 3 passage that part of the characteristic of the perilous times in which we live is that men have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. Part of the form of godliness is praising the Lord. We have that in our charismatic circles and many of our evangelical circles, which is trying to now move into our fundamental circles of praising the Lord. 
The fact about eternal life is to praise Jesus is not enough. I'm afraid that there's too many people today think, well, I go to church and I praise the Lord. I sing the songs and in those songs we're praising God and they think that that is enough, that that has then merited them salvation. Praising the Lord was not enough. It's good to call Jesus good and it's good to call Jesus master. What do those two things tell you? One, if he's good and there's none good but God, you need to assert the deity of Christ. And if you call him master, it means you are bowing. Now this man bowed. He kneeled to the Lord. Called him master. But he wasn't saved. How many people are there in churches that do indeed preach the gospel who praise the Lord call him good, even acknowledge his deity, and call him master. Like Peter said, not so Lord. <laughs> A contradiction of terms, right? If the Lord is Lord, you don't tell the Lord not so. The Lord has the final word. Same thing with him being a master. If the Lord is master, you don't tell the Lord how to run things. Now, what Jesus is going to do is tell the man how to enter the eternal life and how to receive eternal life. And so we're going to look at that as we make our way through the passage of Scripture. Let's jump to the next fact about eternal life. And the second fact is, about eternal life, is that to be respectable is not enough. Again, he calls him good master, respecting him for who he is. I'm sure there are a lot of folks who have a respect for the Lord. In the Old Testament, the word fear, in Abraham's going going to go back down to Philistine territory, and he says something similar to what he said when he went to Egypt. He thought and realized there was no fear of God in this place. Now, having the respect for the Lord, having the fear of the Lord, is not enough to bring about salvation. It is good to have that, and it's, and it's basic to have that. It's necessary to have that. Now, he's going to ask the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do you notice what he's doing here? He is thinking in his heart that I have to do something for salvation. What does the Bible teach us about that? Paraphrasing, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his grace he saved us. When we're saved by grace, grace means that it is a gift given that we do not deserve. We can't earn that salvation. We don't deserve salvation. And so grace means that we are sinners who deserve the opposite of grace. We deserve hell. So being saved by grace, and there's nothing that we can do since it's a gift, nothing that we can do to inherit or earn eternal life. So the man was, his thinking was flawed. What can I do to inherit eternal life? You know, I think there's probably a lot of folks like that today in churches as well. Under the sound of the preaching of the gospel, thinking, well, what must I do to not only inherit eternal life or get saved, but what must I do to stay saved and to keep in God's graces? What's the Bible answer? It is impossible to please God without what? Faith. Hebrews 11.6. Faith. That's the criterion for salvation. 
When you look at how Jesus dealt with Nicodemus, his basic message to Nicodemus is, you must believe. If you follow through, the first part of John chapter 3, of course, he's dealing with Nicodemus and telling Nicodemus you must be born again. And Nicodemus asks, well, how can a man be born again? And then John the Apostle is recording this, of course, in John chapter 3. And so by the time you get to the end of that chapter, well, before you get to the end of the chapter, he's still dealing with Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And then the last verse of that chapter, 336, I don't have it quoted exactly, but it's also belief. The criterion for salvation is faith. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not doing something. God did not tell Nicodemus, Nicodemus, here's what you need to do. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can a man be born when he is old? And Jesus said, you must be born not only of the flesh, but you need to be born of the Spirit. It's a miraculous thing that takes place. And then he uses the illustration which we used in our second hymn, Look and Live. He used the illustration from the situation with Moses and the serpent on the pole. The people were disobedient. They were bitten by snakes. And God told Moses, you take a brass serpent and erect it upon a pole and ask the people to look at that pole. Look at that snake on the pole. And so Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So you lift up the Lord on the cross, and what do you have to do? Look and live. Look to Jesus, and you will live. Look to him in faith, trusting in him for salvation, and that's what the rich young ruler needed. He needed to look at the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. But he wanted to do something. Now, it doesn't say so, but I think in my mind, I'm thinking this man is rich. He is in a position of authority. And so he has the means to buy something, to do something, and he has the authority as a ruler to tell somebody to do something. So he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What about the person who is not rich, who is not in a place of rulership? What can he do to obtain eternal life? So you see, I think this man was trusting in his own position as rich and a ruler in order to earn his salvation. That's the problem. So, he's really in a position of self-righteousness. He's respecting the Lord, yes, but he has this self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is not a means of salvation. Eternal life, it's not enough to praise Jesus. It is not enough to be respectable toward him. And then, well, let me let me just go through this verse here a little bit. We won't dwell on it too much. Verse 19. When the Lord is talking about goodness, there's none good but one, and that is God. So that's the deity of Christ. But then he's questioning, I think, the man's goodness. He's saying in so many words, the rich young ruler is saying in so many words, I am good enough to get to heaven because I have kept these commandments. And there are, what, five or six of them. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. And honor thy father and thy mother. Six of them. They're the ones that have to do with uh, your relationship to mankind. The first three or four had to do with honoring God. These are the commandments that deal with uh, 
our fellow man. And the man answered in verse 20, Master, notice his respect again, not enough to be respectable. Good to be respectable. We're living in a day when people don't know anything about respect. You know, whether it be for our president or whether it be for a, a parent or whether it be for a teacher, we have that first name basis, business and respect. This young man is calling Jesus Master. He says, all these things have I observed from my youth. So he's talking about doing. I've already done those things. What else can I do to inherit eternal life? Now he'll tell them what it is when we get to it. But all these things I have observed from my youth. Well, we could probably go back to the young man. Jesus doesn't do this. And deal with those ten. All right, let's talk about committing adultery. You know, have you ever looked on a woman to lust after her? The Bible says you've committed adultery in your heart already. So have you ever hated anybody? If you hated anybody, that's like killing them. Do not kill, it says. Do not steal. Well, have you ever thought about stealing? And bearing false witness. So, you know, he's saying, all of these things have I observed from my youth. If he's really honest with himself, all of these things I have broken from my youth. He didn't know he was a sinner. He wasn't ready for it. He wasn't a candidate for salvation because he's already too good for salvation. You need to recognize yourself as a sinner. Master, I observe these things from my, my youth. So it's self-righteousness. This does not cut it. Respect for him. But then Jesus, verse 21. Jesus, beholding him, loved him. There's another truth about the matter of salvation. The first fact about eternal life is that it is not enough to praise Jesus. The second fact is not enough to be respectable toward him. The third fact, it is not enough to be loved by Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now that's a great love. Alright? We can't minimize that love. The love of Christ is indeed great. It's a far-reaching love. It's a touching love, an encouraging love. But just because God so loved the world doesn't make everybody saved, does it? And yet there are people who think, who think that and teach that. Well, God loved us and sent His Son, therefore we're all saved. I think that's what some of the folks were saying. We're saved by the grace of God. And so God graced us with His Son, now we're all saved. We just don't know it yet. That's kind of what they taught us when I was in the Mennonite church. Not the church I was in, but the denomination. That's what they wrote in a poem. And that all men are saved, just some don't know it yet. And our job is to go around the world and tell them they're saved. What? What kind of a gospel is that? That'd be a great gospel, wouldn't it? <laughs> We're not already saved. There must be, there must be, here's this young, rich young ruler. He had all the potential for being saved, but was not. He's loved by the Lord. The Lord reaches out to Jerusalem. In Matthew 23:37, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoneth them which are sent unto thee, how oft would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. God loves Israel. Many illustrations of that in the Old Testament. And these truths come out in the New Testament. But being loved by Jesus is not enough. What's the fourth fact? Well, let's go back to our text, verse number 21. Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. One thing thou lackest. 
Now, I would argue with him, because I'm an arguer, and I would have argued with him about his claim to have kept all of those six commandments. Jesus was gracious enough not to argue with him. (laughs) We find that later in the scriptures. There's none good, no, not one. In a sense, Jesus was arguing with him over the fact that he called him good. You know, why callest thou me good? He knew that he really didn't understand that Jesus was God and was not bowing to that doctrine, that theology. But the one thing he lacked, he said, Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. That will be your way of obtaining of eternal life. Now, it's kind of a strange passage in a way, and uh, I think a misunderstood passage. Was Jesus telling him to do something to inherit eternal life? I don't think so. I think Jesus knew the man's heart. And his heart was based on his riches. The next verse says, He was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions, with the inference he did not want to part with those possessions. So he loved his possessions more than he loved God. So in one sense, when the man asked, Master, what can I do? Jesus could have immediately told him, part with your riches. At least be willing to part with your riches. But he wasn't willing to part with his riches. Now, the passage is pretty cut and dry. Jesus is more or less saying to him, give up everything that you have. Take all of your riches. Well, we know, because we're students of the Scriptures, that you don't give up all your riches to be saved. You're saved by grace through faith. We understand that. So, we must understand that what Jesus is telling the man is he's not ready to exercise faith in the Lord because his faith was in his riches. It's pictured by the story of the monkey who puts his hand in the jar full of peanuts. He wants the peanuts. The jar has an opening just big enough for his hand to get through, and he grabs the peanuts, and he can't get his hand out because his hand now is full of the peanuts. And he won't let go of the peanuts to get his hand out. The illustration is you can't hold on to your riches or anything else and have Jesus too. That's what's going on here. Now, I don't think that Jesus is literally meaning that this man had to give up everything. The reason I say that, it's because of what happened with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Let's take a look at that. Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And as a tax collector, he assessed taxes beyond what the Roman government asked him to do. And so he pocketed a lot of extra money And he was therefore rich. And he got saved. He climbed a tree, of course. He's probably like this rich young ruler who's asking the Lord, how can I get eternal life? And he comes to hear the Lord speak. He's a little short fellow. And so he climbs up in the sycamore tree to hear the Lord preach. And unlike the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus gets saved. So in Luke chapter 19, Let's go ahead and read those ten verses. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was of the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods. Now why doesn't he give all of them? Jesus told the rich young ruler to give everything. Behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. I didn't look at the Greek text of this. There's conditional clauses in Greek, and so I'm guessing that this is not a question on Zacchaeus' mind. Well, hey, you know, if I've done anything bad, I think he's saying, since I have. He knew he did steal from folks. He said, I'm going to restore those fourfold, which was according to the Old Testament. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Zacchaeus exercised his faith in the Lord, and he gave his substance to the Lord. Now it doesn't say that he gave everything. But in the rich young ruler's case, since he had great possessions and he loved those possessions more than he loved his own soul, he was not ready for salvation. So he went away sad. Having the love of the Lord is not enough. What was necessary was to give, or I would put it this way, to relinquish everything to the Lord. That's the way you come to Christ. You don't come to the Lord conditionally. You don't get saved by saying and making a bargain with the Lord, well, I'll give you half of my goods, or I'll give you part of... I mean, if you're rich and you part with half, you still have half your riches. That's a pretty good deal, huh? Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler, you need to give everything away and come to me with nothing. That's how you get saved. You come to the Lord with nothing. Just as I am without one plea. That's how we come. Empty, with nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing. We bring nothing to Jesus. He already has everything anyway, so he doesn't need what we have. So it's an attitude, and if it entails actually getting rid of things, then fine. And there are some things I think we need to get rid of before we get saved. So, this man had to get rid of everything because he loved everything that he had and needed to part with them. Well, why doesn't he get saved? Well, we know that if you're saved by faith, this man doesn't get saved because he's got unbelief. He's not willing to entrust his life to Jesus. He wants to hang on to those riches, like that monkey with his hand in the jar. He doesn't want to let go of those peanuts. He thinks those peanuts are going to save his life. Can't live without those peanuts. Can you live without the great possessions? Yes, you can, because Jesus can take care of you. I'm not advocating, and I don't think the Lord was either, of just selling everything and living on nothing. You know, it's wise to have a, a pension or a or retirement plan or, or something along that line. Those are wise things to do. The Bible tells us that, that a wise man provides an inheritance to his children's children. 
So there's wise things to do. I don't think we're supposed to be getting rid of everything. But if those things are keeping us from the Lord and we're trusting in things rather than in the Lord, we also learn that self-righteousness and pride are going to keep us. This man was still full of self-righteousness. He was keeping the law. He was already a good servant of the Lord, he thought. And then, of course, with his love of the world, love of his riches, the love of the world was keeping him from trusting the Lord. You know, those things keep us from salvation. Unbelief, self-righteousness, and the love of the world. But those things will also tempt us as Christians to not walk with the Lord. Unbelief, self-righteousness, when we think we're good enough and don't need to confess our sin and get right with God, and our pride with that, and the love of the world that keeps us from serving the Lord as we ought to. We don't lose our salvation, but so we can learn some things from this rich young ruler. This is Dr. Lee Hennice, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached at church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again.